Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I love to hear you sing. Uh, this is an especially favorite set of mine. I love O Church Arise, but I really love O Come On Come Emmanuel. And yes, we could sing that all year long. Um, you guys can't see it, but it makes my like, makes the hair on my head stand up. <laughs> hey, quiet. Wait down there. All right, so uh, if you are, like Brett said, we got a lot of visitors here this morning. If you're visiting us, we are continuing through the book of 1 Timothy, one of Paul's pastoral epistles writing to a young elder in the city of Ephesus. So we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week, we're in the beginning of chapter 3, dealing with elders. This week, we're uh, continuing on dealing with deacons. And so before we get to that, uh, I want to talk about the idea of being a servant for a moment. Because our modern sensibilities like dislike any idea of servanthood, of humility, of anything that is lowly. Uh, the idea of being a servant, it seems antiquated, it seems outdated, and it seems demoralizing to our culture. Um, there's no one, not many people are signing up for butler school anymore. That, that is a thing, by the way. Um, but this idea that you would serve someone else, that you would make someone else more important than yourself runs contrary to our modern selves. Because the modern idea tells us everything should serve you. You need to be lifted up. You need to be the one who is seen as important. Not looking at others more highly than yourself. Uh, truly, when Jesus said the last shall be first, that is not a modern proverb. Uh, that also doesn't fly in any age because we want to be first. You know, second place is first place loser and all those things. If you're not first, you're last. Um, we take competition into the church often, sadly. Um, if you're familiar with John Milton, the Puritan writer, uh, he wrote Paradise Lost uh, in the 17th century, and there's a famous quote in there. So Paradise Lost is a brilliant, heavy read, uh, but the thesis of the book is he explains what's going on in the cosmic spiritual realm when man and woman rebelled against God and Satan gets his way. One of the famous quotes from Satan is, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Uh, John Milton was not there, but that's probably a direct quote. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And when you reject the living God, that is exactly what you're saying. I would rather be my own God in eternal torment than serve you in blessed glory. This is theological fiction, of course, but it gets right to the heart of humanity. But when we read the scriptures, we were created to serve. We were made in the image of God to serve him. But if you don't serve him, you will serve something or someone or everything else but him. We were made to serve. And if Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is not your master, I guarantee something will be. And that is an inferior master who can never deliver on what he promises or what she promises. But how many of us do this? How many of us serve the master of money, the master of power, the master of influence, the master of our jobs and our accomplishments, the master of our children or our children's activities, the master of sports or, or, or anything else? that becomes the focus that our lives revolve around, and we don't realize we have become their slave. That's why we read from Romans 6 earlier. We are slaves to something. If you are not a slave to Christ, a slave of righteousness, you are still a slave to sin. And you are a slave to whatever you hold most dear. Even if it's someone in your family, they are not meant to stand in the place of God. Romans 6 
gives this dichotomy of being a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness only after Romans 5 that tells us that we are justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we are reconciled to God through him, and that we have moved from the kingdom of Adam, which is a kingdom of death, to the kingdom of Christ, which is a kingdom of life. In the beginning of Romans chapter 6, That if you've died with Christ, you've been buried with him in baptism, you've been risen again to new life, you are now a slave to righteousness. Don't serve sin in your old self and your selfish desires. Because if you are saved by a God who redeems you through the blood of his son, it is a joy to serve. It is a privilege to serve it is an honor to serve because you're not so you're not serving as an unknown lowly servant you are serving as a child of god as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven you serve with your father's banner waving above your head this is what it means to serve because in reality, any volunteer in any nonprofit can serve anywhere and can do more good deeds than you and does more good deeds within you. But without the righteousness of Christ, it is as filthy rags. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so even in our meager efforts and our meager service, God is pleased if you indeed are in Christ Jesus because you bear his name and his righteousness. And so all this lead up about service is going to lead us to talk about deacons because the word deacon simply means servant. The root is one who serves tables. And as they often did, and as Paul often did, he took a common term, one who serves tables and applies it in the church for something that is honorable and dignified. Now, there's some confusion with this. I want to clear it up a little bit. This, the, the noun, diakonos, appears 31 times in the New Testament. Depending on your translation, it's only translated deacon four or five times. The ESV only has it four times, and I agree with their translation. Every other time, it is translated servant or minister. Okay, so why the difference? Jesus is called a diakonos. Paul is a diakonos. Timothy is a diakonos. Even Caesar, the leadership of Rome, is called the servant of God. And so context tells us whether this is referring to someone who serves in a general capacity, or someone who serves in an official capacity. Uh, so the first text I want to look at before we get into ours is Philippians 1.1. There is a pattern in the early church and all throughout history where the overseers or the elders that we looked at last week and the deacons are seen together in a unified, agreed ministry. Um, And this is something that you'll miss in the English, but is present in the Greek. Paul, this is Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants, there's two words, translated servant. One, doulos, which is slave or bond servant, that's what's being said here. And then the other one is diakonos that we're going to look at the rest of our time together. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, the episkopoi, and the diakonoi. The the elders, plural, and the deacons, plural. Every church, this is the pattern for every church. To have plural elders, plural pastors or overseers, and plural deacons. But notice how Paul begins this. Paul the apostle and Timothy, his right-hand man, The elder are called slaves. They use the lower term to address saints and the servants and overseers within the congregation. There is a a whole ecclesiological statement, a statement about the church itself that's being stated in one verse, and we don't have time to get into all that. But what I want you to see here, first and foremost, what is most important is that the elders and the deacons are in the plural and they are in ministry together. They are co-laborers. They are fellow officers within the church. And they will be so for the rest of church history until today. 
And so as we go through this text, and we're, we're going to look at a lot of the similarities between the two, between our text from last week and this week, and some of the differences. But I want you to know when we read these, they are meant to be read together. They are, they are meant to complement one another. And Paul uses, Paul makes places or, or points of emphasis in one that he doesn't in the other, uh, but there's going to be application for both. If that makes sense, uh, it, it will as we go through. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Grab a Bible if you didn't bring one with you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households as well. Own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning as we walk through your word, as we sit under its authority. Help us to submit ourselves to what you have laid out for your church. And help us to examine ourselves according to its standard. I do pray specifically for our men this morning. Not every, man, not every man will serve as an elder or deacon, but as we saw last week, every man should aspire to it because we are called to lead in our homes and in the church. We are called to be examples in character and dignity, being sober-minded in self-control, holding fast to the mystery of our faith putting great confidence in Christ Jesus. That is your will for every man in here. Pray for the women of our congregation as well. May they be like the honorable deacon's wife, who is dignified as well, who is an example to women, who is a compliment to her husband, who encourages him and builds him up in the ministry in their home and in the church. Pray for young men here who want to be married and want to potentially be in ministry one day. Lord, I prepare that you use this time to humble them and convict them and shape them into the image of Christ and mold them by your spirit. And I also pray for those who are here this morning as visitors who are stepping into a family conversation that is for the household of faith. May they see our desire for honor and for obedience and for order because of our submission to our Savior, and may it draw their hearts to him. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So, chapter 3, verse 8. I tell you that these are meant to be read together because of the second word. Deacons, likewise. We're going to spend a little bit of time on both of the likewise that are in this passage. Likewise. When you see a likewise, it means, oh, it's like... Something that came before. So what came before? The expectations for elders. So elders, the, the, the older ones, the overseers, the shepherds, as we looked at last week, there is a high bar for character. Like I said last week, we can teach doctrine, we can't teach character. And so likewise, there's a similar expectation for character. Likewise. From chapter 2, the men who are to lead in the church and lead in their families, lead as elders and serve as deacons. Likewise, both must be carefully selected. Likewise, both must be tested. Likewise, both must be publicly um, recognized. And so remember, this is written to Timothy, but this is read to the entire church. This is read to our entire church and the church throughout the ages. This is meant for the church. Because the scriptures give very little 
to the um, function of the deacons. We don't know what they do from, from day to day. This is the main text we have for the form of the deacons, what shape they are to take. And so we're going to spend some time digging into this. And so this was a, uh, again, we'll bring you into a family conversation. If you were here last week for our members meeting, this was a uh, main point of interest in the members meeting. We'll get there in just a moment when we turn to Acts 6. But as the church grows, we need elders and we need deacons. We ask you to pray for deacons um, and we ask you to recognize, as you, as you read through this, think about men in the congregation who represent these things. You see leading their, their, their family well, who are examples. Pray for them, encourage them. Let me know, let Brett know. And we said, guys, there's gonna be some of you guys who we're gonna tap on the shoulder. And then we also said, it's not for you young guys. We're glad you're here, we want you to learn, we want you to grow, but you need some life under your belt before you can be trusted in this role. But we are at a place where we're a bit overwhelmed. This is a beautiful thing. Uh, Shri was showing me a, a video from, what was it, five years ago? Uh, David's up front, or David's like, in, the, the front row was the third row. There was no one in these first two rows. And then there was like 15 people here, 10 people here, and three people walking around in the back. And it's crazy to, in the ugly red carpet. And it's crazy to see that. And the Lord has blessed us and the Lord has grown us, but we need help. And I want to show you this morning how every member of the body is to be a servant in the body. But we need deacons who are servants among servants. We need men who fit these qualifications, but also get the reward that comes from serving in verse 13. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. Uh, again, if you're a visitor, this is a family conversation, a church conversation, we're, but we're giving you a peek behind the curtain. This is what we do in the church, this is what we talk about in the church. Um, all right, so the deacons, they're the servants among servants. And again, if, you're, if your modern sensibilities still, if your feathers are a little ruffled by this idea of being a servant, um, I want to show you the precedent for being a servant. We're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 42. We follow behind our Lord, who did not come. He is king, but he did not come with the title of king. He came with the title of servant. And he was prophesied as one who served the people, the nations, and all of creation. Isaiah chapter 42, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. This is a promise of the true and living God. One servant and notice, as, as I read through this, the yous are singular. When you talk to a Jewish person, they would say that the you here, the servant, is all of Israel. No, it's in the singular. It's not in the plural. There is one servant in mind. Isaiah chapter 42, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth when what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in the singular in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Does that type of servant sound like a humiliating proposition? The God of glory, who gives his glory to no other, sends his son, the Lord of glory, to be a servant. Let's look at one more text in Luke chapter 22. 
This is from Jesus' own mouth. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. I love how when the disciples ask bad questions, Jesus responds with good theology. They ask a question, or there's a dispute that arose among them of which of them is going to be regarded as the greatest. They have learned nothing at this point. And he says to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now before I go on to the rest of that, diakonos and every one of those, listen to it this way. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who deacons. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who deacons? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who deacons? This is the pattern and example of our Lord. And what does he promise to those who serve well? Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus' promise is the one who serves well in this life will reign in the next. One who serves well in this life will reign in the next. Last week, Jesus himself is called shepherd and overseer, and so elders, pastors are in good company. This week he is called servant, deacon, lowercase d, and you are in good company if you serve in his name. So what's the difference between deacons and elders? Uh, again, like I said earlier, very little is given to their function, um, but we have their, their form, like what, what they are. And so uh, this division, the beginning of, of this is kind of illustrated in Acts chapter 6. So uh, there's pretty vast agreement on this, uh, and those who don't agree, I'm not going to address. Um, but this is the division between elder and deacon. Very, very early on in the, in the infantile days of the church, the apostles are given a task of addressing a growing congregation, much like ours, um, except they have a lot of problems we don't have. Thankfully, None of us are going hungry here. None of us are missing meals. But there, there was a problem. There were widows and orphans who were not being fed. And there was partiality going on between ethnic Jews and Jews who were um, kind of adopted into Greek Hellenistic culture. And so there was preferential treatment to those Hebrew-speaking Jews and not the Greek-speaking Jews. And this is not good to ever have division in the body. And so here's what the wisdom of God given to the elders puts forth. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows had been neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, as the apostles here, summoned the full number of the disciples. They summoned the church. And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to God, of God to serve tables. Here you go, same idea. The deacon, the one who serves, um, and the, the one who preaches the word of God. So here's our, our first indication of what the, the distinction is. There is the ministry of the word and what supports the ministry of the word. The elders have a primary spiritual oversight of the body, which of course bleeds into the physical. But the elders have a, or the, the deacons have a primarily uh, physical care, care and concern for the body, which bleeds into the spiritual. And so you, because the body has both of these needs, but it is not good and it is not right if a handful of men is trying to do everything for everyone. And this is what we talked about in our members meeting. We are at a place where it's not good. 
Pastor Jesse is on a sabbatical for the next couple months. Praise God that I still have energy. And it's not, we're not complaining. We love the body. And we love teaching. We love praying. But it is hard to teach if I, I am quite literally serving tables, which I often have to do. Or when everything that goes wrong in the church comes to one of the elders. And so we are praying for and asking for deacons. And we're going to, um, again, tap some men on the shoulder because this is our pattern. Here, let's, let's continue on. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you, notice, the, the elders notice the problem, they come up with a solution, and they delegate it, and they involve the congregation. Therefore, brothers, speaking to the whole church here, pick out from among you, that's why we want our members to be invested in this, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there is a duty, there's a need in the body that the servants, the deacons are appointed to, and there is the continual ministry of the word in prayer that the elders are given to. And what was the response? And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Yes, our spiritual needs are going to be met and our physical needs are going to be met. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and the proselyte, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, seven Greek men, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think this is descriptive, but it is also prescriptive, meaning it's described what happened in history, but it is prescribed for what should happen throughout all ages. When there are faithful men teaching and faithful men serving and leading the body, the Lord blesses it and the Lord grows it. And we want to, be continue, we want to continue to be faithful with what the Lord has given us to steward. So, quick summary. The elders are responsible for oversight and delegation that promotes the ministry of the word, as they exercise the ministry of the word. The deacons are responsible for service and supporting the ministry of the word. Like in chapter 2, there is equality between men and women, but the roles are distinct. Same thing here. There is not a hierarchy in value. There's a hierarchy in responsibility, but the value is the same. We are one in Christ Jesus. But we have differing roles with different responsibilities, with different accountability. And so that's what we're seeing here. Um, there's uh, resources that we use quite often, uh, biblical eldership. Uh, Alexander Strzok has written a lot of great books on this. And so um, his book, Paul's Vision for the Deacons, uh, Assisting the Elders with the Care of God's Church. Um, so he uses the terminology of elder or deacons being assistants to the elders. They are men in the church who are given agency who under the authority of the elders are given direction and responsibility in particular areas. Uh, some of the other terminologies that we, we use and are helpful in other books is, um, uh, there's, a, there's a Nine Marks book on deacons that's really good, and they use the, the picture of, of a shock absorber. You know, when you're, when you're riding over difficult ground and you go over bumps, if you don't have shock absorbers, you're going to be bounced all over the place. But when you have a good shock absorber, someone to stand between you and the, 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 the hole in the ground or the rocks on, on, the, on the path, the ride becomes smoother. And so in that way, deacons function as eyes and ears and hands to the elders. Hey, I saw this problem over here, but I, it is so encouraging every time a man in the congregation comes to me and how often our deacons come to me and say, hey, uh, I saw that this was going on, but I talked to them and we're able to take care of it. There's a need over here, we'll, we'll handle that, we'll take care of it. Uh, and that becomes a great blessing to the elders and an extension to the rest of the body. And let's be a little honest, I'll speak for Jesse and I here, this is hard. We want to do everything. We want to be involved in everything. We, we, we want to be a part of every conversation and be around the body all the time, but we can't. Um, one thing that pastoral ministry I know has taught both of us is our frailty uh, and our, our humanity and the very limits of it. 
And so we are getting in a place where we have reached the limits of our humanity. Um, as superhuman as we are, uh, this, is, this is as far as we can go. Um, but, so if you have questions about this, I'm going to leave these up here. So uh, they've got great resources on elders, on, on deacons, on spiritual maturity. Uh, and, and so uh, we go through this with our, with our elders and we go through this with our deacons. Uh, the resources are fantastic. All right, so I haven't gotten past the second word yet. Um, we'll move a lot faster. There's a lot of ground to lay before we went on. Uh, deacons, likewise, must be. Remember this theme from last week. This is not optional. They must be. We saw this four times among the elders, another three times among the deacons. Deacons must be. This is a comprehensive character assessment. Maybe representative. I don't know if it's comprehensive, but it gives you an idea. So again, this is one of those messages, two weeks in a row, we're talking to men directly. But indirectly, we're talking to every believer in the room. Because what we learn about godly character here should be aspired to by everyone. We learn about service here everyone should aspire to. We all strive toward godly character in the principles that are here. And so let's look at these briefly. There are four areas of self-control. Notice, uh, self-control was the concern last week. Self-control is Paul's concern in Titus chapter 2 with, with, with men. I guess that's just the theme. Men, we need self-control. And so here's four ways that you can see in a man's life if he's able to control his actions and his, and his affections and his urges. And in order to be trusted, you can't be a slave to your own desires and your own urges. You must be a slave to righteousness, not to your sin or to your preferences or anything else. And so deacons must be dignified. This is one who is recognized and respected by others. His character should be evident, and it's not a facade. You don't catch him when he's out of character. He is dignified in all situations. It doesn't mean that he's a stick in the mud and, 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 and that you know, he's got to wear a suit at all times. But this is someone whose character is dignified. Whether you catch him by accident or he shows up on purpose, uh, you see this unwavering character. They, they, they carry themselves as an example in a way that is commendable to all. Not to be, and not to be double-tongued. Uh, you, you get the imagery here. It's self-explanatory. This is a hypocrite who can't be trusted because he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. You can see how this can become a problem. Because if you need to be trusted with either church finances or someone's personal, uh, you know, personal situation or or a job from the elders, men, we've got to get better at this. So many men are good at saying, of course I'll do that. Hey, I've got an idea. I'll take care of that. And how many times do you forget? Or do you just neglect it? Or do you do it halfway? We need men, and we want to be men, who are not double-tongued. When we say our yes is yes and our no is no. When we say we'll show up, we'll be there. When we say we'll be awake for church, we'll be awake Still sleeping. Um, we want to be men who are men of our word because our brothers and sisters depend on us, but because we are representing the Lord every time we speak and say we're going to do something in his name. Not addicted to much wine. We looked at this last week. It is not alcohol that is the problem. It is your self-control that is the problem. If you become addicted Put it away. Cut your hand off. Because if you're a slave to that, you can't be trusted to be a slave to righteousness. As we said last week, if you are a drunkard, you are no longer sober-minded and you are no longer self-controlled and you have disqualified yourself. Uh, I want to look at Ephesians 5 here. because I think Ephesians 5 sums all this up. Uh, and then also be not greedy um, because you're going to be entrusted with church resources, and you don't want to be guilty of partiality. But I think uh, Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21, is a great summary that encompasses all of these. Here's what a mature Christian walk looks like. Here's what we want to see in men. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will of what the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How? By addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanksgiving always and in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a heart of joy and love because our Savior who served us and died for us has entrusted his gospel and his ministry to us, and so that flows out of our heart. And so we're careful how we walk. We would not be given over to alcohol or anything else that would make, it, make us a slave to it. All right, let's move on to verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These are not mindless servants. These are not unregenerate yes men. These are men of conviction. These are men of faith. They must grasp. They must believe and cling to the faith in such a way that they exemplify it for everyone who sees. They must be able to model and defend the faith for the congregation and for outsiders. They must hold to it. Just because they're not called to teach doesn't mean that they can't or they won't. One of the most powerful sermons we have in the New Testament is Stephen, one of those men who we saw in chapter 6. Very soon after, he is martyred at the hands of the man who wrote the letter we're reading now. They must hold fast. They must hold this mystery. They must fear the Lord and know him and not fear men. And what is this, this mystery? The mystery is Christian orthodoxy, which we're going to spend all of next week on. But I want to give you a little glimpse. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is this great mystery? The person and work of Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So that will be next week. But this is the mystery of Christian orthodoxy, what is right doctrine for the church that the deacons must hold to. Uh, and these two concepts are brought together in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, uh, this section is my favorite pastoral section in yeah, probably in the New Testament. But beginning in verse 24, I want you to see how these ideas come together here. This idea of serving and this holding to the mystery. Uh, this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul also writing here, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Everything Paul does, he does for the church of which I became a minister, diakonos here. Same word translated deacon elsewhere. He's not speaking about the official office. He's speaking about his function as minister. According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, this mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches and the glory of this ministry, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's this mystery that the, the, that the deacons hold on to? Christ in you. That is our hope. That is our glory. And so a deacon does not need to be a systematic theologian, but he absolutely needs to know that Christ is in him. And Christ is his hope. Christ is his salvation, and Christ is his future glory. And in the ministry of the gospel that comes out of that, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the role of pastor. This is the elder's call. For this I toil in struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. The blending together of servants who hold fast to Christ in them so that the church 
his bride would be built up and encouraged that they may be mature. And this is what we labor for. Elders, deacons, and every member of the body of Christ, we want to see the body be mature because that is what brings Christ glory. And so deacons, like elders, their function flows out of their faith. Any well-meaning volunteer, like I mentioned earlier, this is not just empty works. These are men rooted in the conviction that Christ is in them, and Christ is their hope. And they respond out of gratitude, and they serve because our Savior served us by taking on flesh, by walking among us, by going to the cross, by interceding on our behalf, by paying the debt that we deserve, by rising again to new life, to ascending to glory on high, and still to this day as our high priest hears us when we pray. We serve him. We serve because of him. We serve out of what he has done for us. And so, if it is in you, as Paul says in Colossians, it will flow out of you in your service. So we talk about this here often, but there cannot be a divorce between our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Two theological terms that mean right doctrine and right practice. Because... If you have right doctrine, it will flow out into right practice. It should, otherwise your doctrine's wrong. Our doctrine must always lead to right practice. But our practice should always flow out of our doctrine. Otherwise, it's just moralism. And so we need to hold both of these things, and the whole man needs to be in agreement. And that's why, when we go on in, in 1 Timothy... They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Again, you don't have to know every answer to every theological question. Here's what you need to know. I believe that this Jesus who took on flesh, who walked among us, who lived perfectly, died for me. He rose again, and when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. He is my righteousness. He is my sufficiency. He is my hope. He is my security. I hold that with a clear conscience, and I am unwavering in that. Because if you try to serve based on your faithfulness, you will fail every time. But if you serve out of his faithfulness, even when we fail, he is still faithful. This is not just a set of facts for the deacon, but an actual assurance and an actual Savior who actually redeemed me. This is necessary for every deacon, and this is desirable for every believer. I want every one of you to be able to say those words, that I hold the mystery of the faith that we're going to talk about next week with a clear conscience. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So this also assumes that the elders are being tested as well. They didn't say that the elders are tested, but again, these are read together. If you see a likewise, if you see an also, um, there's a pattern here. You wouldn't put a deacon in an office without testing. You certainly wouldn't put an, an elder in the office without, without testing. This word for tested, it means examination. Uh, it, was, it was a term that was used for someone who had, who had um, genuine credentials. They could actually prove who they were. They were sent with a message, an, an emissary from one office to another, and they were shown that I have been tested. This is true, and this is accurate. It stands up over time. This is the parallel to verse 6 that we looked at last week. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. This testing takes place over time, over examination. And so, this is one of those things. What does this look like? We don't know. We have no idea what this, this looks like, but uh, Strzok is helpful here. He says, um, I thought this was a really helpful comparison. Unlike the book of Leviticus, the New Testament allows a great deal of freedom for conducting such matters. I think often when we read the New Testament, like Leviticus is easy. Okay, eat this, don't eat this. Go here, don't go here. Because we are now free in Christ, we are given freedom. He goes on to say, detailed methods for selecting, examining, approving, and installing church officers 
are left in the hands of local church and its leaders. The church's size and cultural context are factors in determining the specifics. A church of 1,000, for example, will have to do things differently than a church of 50. Scripture only prescribes, number one, the qualifications for deacons, number two, the necessity of examination by others, and number three, warning against the hasty appointment of officers. Uh, And he goes on to say, uh, I like this sentence from uh, the next page, examining a potential deacon's qualifications for office is part of the responsibility that comes with living together as members of the family of God. Therefore, the congregation is not to be passive in the examination of its elders. I think that is very, very good advice. And so when Paul says here, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so it helps to be in a church size where we know you. Anyone we're going to tap on the shoulder, we've known you for at least a couple years. And we can watch and observe your life, but hopefully the body knows you and is watching and observing your life as well. But it is sad at how few churches have this emphasis and how few churches put the work in to examine and actually get to know men. Oh, you're a guy who's shown up and dresses nice. You should be a deacon. Oh, you're, you're a plumber. You should be a deacon with very little concern for someone's heart. This is not new, though. Jerome The church father who wrote the Latin Vulgate translation in the year 394 AD wrote this. Many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittered with gold, their altars studded with jewels, yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. That is not a modern problem. That is a human problem. And so these men who we observe, who we test, show themselves blameless to have no charge against them, and either their character, what we just studied, or their family, what we're about to study. The elders in the congregation need to be in agreement. We want what we saw in Acts 6. We want the whole congregation to say, yes, this is a good idea, and here are the men for the job. That is our hope. So let's move on to our second likewise in verse 11. Um, I am not getting into all the controversies on this, but I'm going to help you interpret this. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified. Okay, the must be applies to the wife of a deacon. This likewise tells us three things. Number one, it shows the parallel between the men as elders and the men as deacons. Number two, it shows the parallel between the husband and his wife. There is a concern for character in both elders and deacons, in both elders and deacons' wives. This this likewise applies to a lot. And number three, it shows us the parallel between the wives of elders and the wives of deacons. Do you think that Paul, like he says this only about deacons and not about elders, do you think Paul doesn't care about the character of the wives of elders? elders? Yeah, of course he does. Just like he cares about the children of deacons. He emphasizes the children when he's talking about elders, and he emphasizes the wives when he's talking about deacons, because they're both important. And so they must be read together. So these men who are devoted to the Lord, as we saw in verse 9 and 10, are domesticated. It's not a bad word. That word means someone who is devoted to the affairs of his home. This man who is devoted to the Lord must be devoted at home as well. And so very briefly, there's a debate about whether we should have women deacons or not, and some will try to translate this as uh, deacons, I think, for many reasons, especially the next verse, um, and the context, and the likewise, and the chapter 2, where it says that women should not uh, exercise authority or teach. um, That, and many reasons, um, this is a modern fascination, the idea that this is... uh, that he's talking about male deacons. He has one line about female deacons. He goes back to male deacons. This is very, very modern. Um, And so we're not going to get into that other other than um, what I just said. So, wives must also be. And again, just because the deacons don't have a public ministry doesn't mean you and your family will not be an example to the rest of the church. Plus, Men, your ministry will flourish or flounder depending on the encouragement or discouragement of your wife. Your wife will either be a sail or an anchor for your ministry. 
She will either help you sail along and encourage you and walk step by step with you and hold you accountable and build you up, or she will be dragging the bottom of the sea and you are weighted down and so you can't minister properly. And so this, how can you promote order in a church if there is disorder in your home? That is why she must be dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded and faithful in all things. If she's not, you're unequally yoked and you can't serve. Take care of, just like last week, elders, you must take care of your home first before you worry about the household of God. But if your wife is these things, she is a blessing to your ministry. And she compliments you well, and other women will see her as an example, example, example which to emulate. <laughs> putting both those words together. All right, verse 12. Let deacons each be the same phrase we saw for elders. A one-woman man, a one-husband wife. Or a one-wife husband. A lot of words today. You know what I meant. This is also why I don't think that this is promoting female deacons because the phrase is exactly the same. A man of one wife, a one woman man. Just like elders, their home is going to be the proving ground for their ministry. Their ministry is going to be a reflection of their home. So there's additional concerns for elders to be hospitable, able to teach and gentle and not prone to quarrels. The character is the same, but the standard's a little higher. Why? Because as an elder, you're going to be speaking in spiritual authority. You're going, to be, you're going to have a much more intimate role in the doctrine of the church, the purity of the church, the correction of the church. And if you can't love people well, if you like arguments, if you have to be right, if you like a good quarrel, if you like a good debate, uh, you're not meant for that role. And deacons shouldn't be those things either. But it is much more present and detrimental when the, elder, when the elders are argumentative, when the elders are arrogant, when the elders don't love people enough to have them in their home for dinner. That makes a huge difference for the culture of the church. And so again, these are equal men in value, but there is greater responsibility for the elder, but it does not mean we take the deacon role lightly. Now, all that, kind of setting up the weight and the importance of it, we cannot miss the encouragement at the end. And this is not only for deacons. Again, this is to be read together. Because here it's talking about the benefit and the reward for deacons. You don't think there's a benefit and reward for elders? So we've got to be careful in our hermeneutics and be so tightly wound to think that every phrase here only applies to deacons. Because there is a great reward for anyone who serves well, and who has a great confidence in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, chapter, thir- chapter 5, what am I doing? Chapter 3, verse 13. Forgive me, guys. I, I had to preach last night, too, so this is just a bonus. Um, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Why all this emphasis on the deacons? And then why lean here? Because serving The body is serving Christ. And it builds up the church, but it also builds up the servant. Many of you may know this. When you come and talk to me and talk about struggling, and your conversation becomes very myopic, it's you looking at your own issues, I will often encourage you, who are you serving? Who are you caring for? You know how to get your mind off of yourself? Go find someone else who needs needs to be encouraged and to be loved and to be served and it, it is a great remedy for our own self-centeredness. And it becomes its own reward. There's a dual reward here. There's a temporal reward and a spiritual reward. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing. This is rank or a step up. You are seen highly. I, I, I love how our body talks about our deacons. How often I hear encouragements of how they love and and care for people well. It's a good thing to be rewarded for faithful service. We should encourage those who serve well before men. Also, there's a spiritual reward. There's a rank before men, 
and this great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ, there is a rest before God. When you serve out of the gospel, out of your faith, when your doctrine leads to your, your practice, your confidence in the Lord grows. You know how to grow in the Lord if you struggle in your faith, struggle in assurance? Serve someone in the name of Christ and praise him for it. And that confidence will grow. I like what Strzok says here. I would, I would quote this all day, but uh, I'm just going to limit myself. Page 146, he quotes uh, William Mounts, who's a Greek scholar, and uh, that's where I took my Greek from. He says, It is not so much that by being a good deacon, a person will receive rewards. It is in the actual doing of the service that one daily acquires a better standing before the people and more confidence in one's personal faith. These rewards are not given to a believer at a certain time, but rather are achieved during the process of service. Let me say that again. These rewards are not given to a believer at a certain time. We live in such a quid pro quo society. I'll do this so I get this in return. When is my reward? When does that happen? He's absolutely right. The reward is achieved during the process of serving and over a time of serving. And so, men, I have to ask you, what rewards do you seek? Do you seek the rewards that only men can give? Promotions, accolades, pats on the back. Who do you serve? Do you serve the Lord or do you serve yourself? Do you serve just enough so people think that you're a good guy, but not too much where it inconveniences the rest of your schedule or your plans to watch the game? Do you serve well because your confidence is in the Lord? Because if you serve out of confidence in the Lord, by your serving, you will grow in confidence in the Lord. I don't know how that works, but it does. Uh, I also want to read what Strzok said here later on. I think this is the last two times I'm going to quote him, and then we're going to wrap up. He says here, uh, this is for all saints. He says, the Christian life begins with faith in, in Christ for salvation. The Christian life also is lived moment by moment through active, ongoing faith in Christ, which includes trusting his teachings and promises as found in Scripture. In the process of serving well as assistants to the elders and ministering to the church family, deacons will gain a deeper and enlarged faith in Christ. They will see their personal relationship with Christ, which is by faith, strengthened, encouraged, and sustained. Deacons who have gained a deeper confidence in their faith in Christ are stronger, more mature, more stable Christians. They have a greater love for Christ, greater understanding of God's word, greater love for his people, greater commitment to Christ and the church, and make greater personal sacrifices of their time and money. Could deacons gain anything better then great confidence in their personal faith relationship with Christ, growing deeper and closer to their Savior and Lord. Let me say that again. Could deacons gain anything better than great confidence in their personal faith relationship with Christ, growing deeper and closer to their Savior and Lord? That's my desire for deacons. That is my desire for every believer. That's my desire as, as a pastor. That's why men, uh, today in our men's study, in a full plug for the men's study, we're dealing with assurance of salvation. Uh, in the past, we've dealt with you know, one to three chapters. We're just dealing with this. This is so vital. And everything else we, we've, we've dealt with in the confession up to this point leads to assurance of salvation. And I want you to have that great confidence in the faith. Um, these also come together in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. Uh, so many Ephesians quotes, and there'll be many more next week. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. I want you to see how all these themes come together, leading into this confidence in Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, diakonos again, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Let me say that again. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I am asking you not to lose heart what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Notice the clear thread of the servant, the mystery, and the confidence that go hand in hand. And so, in conclusion, I want to give you just three points of quick application, and then we'll, we will close. Every church needs deacons. This church needs deacons. And so I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray for faithful servants in every body of Christ all over the globe. But I ask specifically the members of this church to pray for the men of this church, to encourage them. If you see, and don't be passive in this process. If you see a man with these characteristics who leads his family well, he may not be perfect. Your, your, your pastors are certainly not perfect. But this is a man who does not have any, he is above reproach in the sense that he does not have any major sins against him. We all have little things. But this is a man who loves the Lord, who loves his family, and who strives toward righteousness. Pray for them. And I think in most churches this is neglected. This is avoided. Um, you, you're, they're deacons if they have any. They're uh, kind of glorified maintenance men. But I think the problem here in our church, if I'm to be honest, is I think the, we, we hold Scripture so high that the bar is so high that qualified men don't think this is for them. And qualified men have avoided the call that we've asked on them. We've had men who have, who have turned us down because they don't think that they're worthy. You're not. That's why we asked you. But I want to end with that encouragement. Because even if you think that you are not qualified, I was not qualified when I got here. Jesse was not qualified when I got here. Brett's certainly not qualified. <laughs> I love you, Brett. But there is something in the service that the Lord does. Right, George? All right, Josh? How in serving and loving others, the Lord builds your confidence in him. He builds your love for the body. And you receive rewards you never pictured. People come up and hug you and thank you for your, your service. That is a beautiful reward. Number two, we should all hold fast to and work out our faith. I want us all to have that assurance. I want to give you a little glimpse of what we're going to be studying in our men's study. So this is going to be the second London quote. I, I, I skipped the, the first one. This is chapter 18 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, begins with, and therefore. Yep. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy and in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. This is my goal as pastor. This is our goals as pastor. We want you to have assurance in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And if you don't, I hope you tremble in the weight of your own sin and cry out to him for mercy. And if you need prayer or you have questions about this, talk to me. There are many men here who love to talk to you. Brett would love to talk to you. Uh, and our men are going to be discussing this this afternoon. And then number three, therefore, Every Christian is a servant. Every Christian serves the body. We serve our Lord out of our assurance. And we are people who serve until he comes. I want to leave you with these words in Luke chapter 12. Let us be these people. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action. These are the words of our Lord. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will dress them himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes at the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your word. Uh, Bless this time in it this morning. Bless your people. May your spirit work in our hearts and our minds and transform us according to it. May you convict us and conform us to your word. May we serve well. May you raise up deacons and more elders in this body as our men lead families. And as our women encourage their husbands and raise up children that we may glorify you because we are all one in Christ Jesus and it's in his name we pray, amen.